Hi, and welcome to another episode of Bum, Earth and Beyond podcast, hosted by myself, Dr. Joseph Scroy, and proudly brought to you by Tiny Hearts Education. On today's episode, I'm joined by Tara Ortiz, who's got a little baby uh, by the name of Freddie, who's eight weeks of age. We're going to share in her pregnancy journey and also the birth of her little brother. Um, welcome today, Tara. Hi, how are you going? Good. So, we started this podcast when uh, little Freddie was about three weeks of age, and I was a bit surprised that you were sort of straight into it uh, so soon after having a bubba. So, how is Freddie? Yeah, Freddie's been actually really good. We've um, settled in now and kind of found our feet. I suppose I was lucky that my husband had four weeks off, so um, he was able to look after Freddie that first little chat we had. So, yeah. <laughs> awesome. And uh, tell me a little bit about yourself in terms of what you do and, and, uh, and you know, when, when you sort of had thought about the fact that you wanted to be a mum. Yeah, so I'm a teacher at a primary school um, and I also do a bit of wellbeing stuff there too. So um, I thought, and I've always worked with kids, I love kids, I've been around kids. Uh, my sister has two little ones, three, and actually my little niece will be one tomorrow, which is exciting. And, yeah, just love being around them, their energy, their, you know, tenacity, everything they bring. So I knew I wanted to be a mum and uh, my partner and I have done a lot. Um, we've, you know, got a house together, we've got a dog together, we've travelled, we've seen a lot. And we just thought, you know, in our careers that it was a good time to start trying. And, you know, we were super lucky and I know a lot of people aren't, but, yeah, we just gave it a go and we got pregnant straight away. So meant to be. Oh, magnificent. I always, I'm always surprised in terms of how teachers choose kids' names because, of course, there's so many kids that you got, you got naughty kids and the good kids and then one, <laughs> one good kid, their name becomes a bad kid's name. So how did you settle on Freddie as a name? Yeah, look, it was a tough slog. My husband was um, picking a lot of names that I was like, there's no chance I'm calling my child that <laughs> um, just from having so many kids. And, you know, I've worked in a uh, few different areas, in a low SES area as well. So there were some good names in there that were a definite no. Um, we never had – I've never taught a Freddie. So the two names that we had for a boy, both of them, I'd never taught. Um, that name before and the girls names we had as well actually I'd never taught it was it was actually quite hard because there were some cute names that I just could not associate my child with that name having taught you know having taught a child of that name and having that kind of I don't know not stigma but that relationship with the name I just thought nah I can't do it. So Freddie was a completely clean slate for you? Clean, <laughs> fresh, fresh name, which was great. It's <laughs> a lot easier, doesn't it? Yeah, and it was hard to find one actually. That was a fresh name that we both loved um, because it was just going to be Daniel after my husband. Um, my husband's the third Daniel in his family, so um, it was going to be that. But I, uh, we talked about it and thought, you know, we've already got two Daniels. He's dad and him do we want a third Daniel that we're going to have to try and figure out a name for because we've got Danny and Dan you know what do you call our little one so um we could have just called him the third could have just called him the third (laughs) oh we could have I just thought something quite quite regal like that yeah so um Freddie got Daniel as a middle name lucky him (laughs) So you said to me that you, it didn't take you too long to be able to come pregnant. That's really awesome. Had you been, I mean, you talked about the fact that your sister's got a couple of kids and so have you been around children throughout your life in yeah, terms I of have, babies, not as a teacher? Uh, um, babies, I suppose, well, well, actually there's a seven-year gap between myself and my brother. I'm the middle child. So um, with that, mum always says, and I remember, I was obsessed with my brother. So when he came along, you know, I'd get home from school and I was the one who wanted to give him the bottle and, you know, help out. If he cried, I'd pass him back. Um, And then after that, my aunties and uncles started having babies. So I suppose from that kind of age onwards, there's been babies. But then as a teenager until now, 
until my sister kind of had kids. Um, not really. All my friends have started having kids now as well. So we've got three brothers in the group and a few more are pregnant. So, uh, yeah, we're just, I suppose it's just that stage in life where we've all gotten married and done things and been around babies, um, yeah, just kind of always been there. So you ended up, uh, what's your partner's name? Daniel. So, oh, of course, I was going to say it was going to be Daniel. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, so that's I'm a bit slow, obviously. It's a Saturday morning for me. Um, so yeah. Daniel, obviously, and both of you came to the point that you were ready to have children and, uh, you know, get pregnant straight away. In terms of, uh, you know, were you sort of, a lot of people when I speak to them about trying to get pregnant, I always talk about how women live in two-week cycles. So sort of, you know, get a period, wait to ovulation and then wait for the pregnancy test. You only needed to do that once, I presume. Yeah, so we kind of decided, actually, it's a funny story, but um, we thought in June we'd start getting, um, start trying because I am a teacher. I didn't want to have a baby between November and February were my cutoff dates. So June was going to give us a March baby. Um, and when it came to June, my partner was actually, Dan was actually sick and he said, oh, I don't want to start trying now because I don't want to have a sick baby. So <laughs> we actually waited till July to start trying. And, yeah, we've, um, you know, I just had the Flow app actually and I was just tracking off that. And my body was pretty regular by then. I'd been off the pill for a while, so I felt like I kind of knew what was going on. My period came back straight away as well, so that was really lucky. And then um, when we started trying, I, yeah, had to wait two weeks and then, yeah, found out we were pregnant, which was on the day of my period was due. I was like, I'm not waiting any more than what I need to. So did the pregnancy test that night and the next day went and did a uh, um, blood test and, yeah, we were pregnant. <laughs> Official. So how did you tell Daniel that you were pregnant? Well, we did that together. So um, uh, he was with me and we were laughing because when I actually did the pregnancy test, you know, it says wait three minutes or whatever it is, pretty much as soon as I had weed on the stick, initially it came up like that and I remember looking at it and I said Dan there's a there's a line and he goes no it's only been 30 seconds it can't it can't come up that quickly he's an accountant so you know it's got to stick to the to the numbers and I said no there's a definite line on the stick and I was laugh I'm just laughing you know look it's official because why would it come up that quickly and then he's like no we'll do another one so we did another one and um straight away again so I was like I think we're pregnant darling like this is very clear sign so he was with me I just we were both like shocked that it happened so quickly you know you hear so many stories so we just didn't expect it I suppose but we we wanted it um and I just remember him he had our dog actually and was he pacing up and down and I was in the toilet just laughing and we were like it's it's all all go so and we're dancing around yeah. and having a bit of fun. Oh, that, that's awesome. And so you knew you, were, you knew your due date and you were quite happy being a, a little bit later given the fact, in natural fact, we might, might talk on that. I mean, obviously Daniel was worried about uh, being sick, but, you know, most of the times in terms of sperm production, uh, the, the sort of what comes out in an ejaculate today for a man has actually started being created sort of three months ago. So if you oh, do wow. have an illness sort of, yeah, so if you... As a bloke, if you get sick now, it'll affect your sperm quality in three months' time. So the fact that he was sick and then obviously got pregnant was just virtue of the fact that two months prior to that he was okay. Yeah, um, I know, go. So uh, it's all good. Um, so uh, obviously the pregnancy was, uh, you know, confirmed on a blood test and you go off to having your first pregnancy scan. Did, yeah. Who did you, did you see did you go to the public sector? How did you, where did you have your baby? So I went through um, an obstetrician, the same obstetrician my sister yep. um, had, Carl, who's amazing, yep. could not um, rave about him any higher. Um, I had clubs at private hospital in um, where we are in Geelong, St. John of God. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it was all um, really well. I actually um, went in at six weeks because I got gastro at school. 
and no one obviously knew I was pregnant at that stage and I got gastro. I thought it was morning sickness um, and I panicked a bit because I was like, oh, I'm so freshly pregnant, you know, and I've been so sick. I hope that Bubs is okay. So I went in at six weeks um, and my due date was technically the 11th of April. And then when we did that scan, it came up that we were measuring a week ahead. So changed our due date to the 4th of April. Um, and so technically we were seven weeks when we went in, which was, yeah, pretty funny. So that's interesting. So when, so you were having regular 28 day cycles or you only just had the one cycle before you, you, you ended up getting pregnant with Freddie? Yeah, no, I was always like literally to the day or like a day before or day after. There was, I was very regular. So yeah, and 28 days. Radio, and so when you did that first scan, you thought you were six weeks, but they upgraded you. It's like yes. an upgrade. You got like a super sized <laughs> I got baby. A, I got a week <laughs> while he was super sized, so <laughs> he was a big baby yeah. the whole time, actually. Um, yeah. So yeah, we got a, bit, a week earlier. There's an upgrade, which was funny so, because when I fell pregnant, or when I thought I was pregnant, I um, was seeing a lot of fours around me, and then his due date happened to be the fourth of the fourth, which we were both like. This is crazy. So, just fine. Yeah, I might actually touch on that a little bit. Obviously, a lot of people come in with their first pregnancy scan, knowing what their due date is. Yeah, and a lot of women will have a regular twenty-eight day cycle, which means that they ovulate day fourteen. And we often wonder, well, why do we say that you're four weeks pregnant on the first day that you're actually skipping yeah. period? Yeah, I didn't really get that. Yeah, so technically speaking, whilst you're not pregnant in the first two weeks from when you have your period until you ovulate, that you're not pregnant then, right? Because obviously no egg's been released. Mm. It's not until sperm meets an egg and obviously you get a fertilised embryo or fertilised egg and creates an embryo that you're actually technically pregnant. Yeah. But the issue is, of course, women will have varied menstrual cycles. So some women will have a 35-day cycle. Some women will have a 28-day cycle. So... In actual fact, the best way of calculating your pregnancy or your due date is based on when you think you conceived and then take away two weeks. And then you go from there as being your last menstrual period. So a woman who has a 35-day cycle, even though her last menstrual period will be 35 days ago, it'll add an extra week to her pregnancy. And yet she'll only be, while she might think she's five weeks pregnant, Mm -hmm because obviously day one to day 35 is, is uh, five weeks, in actual fact she'll only be four weeks pregnant because she's ovulated that extra week later, so day 21. Okay. So that's why we sort of we always have to vary. Now, when a woman comes to me having had very regular menstrual cycles and she knows pretty much the day that she's conceived, if I have a look at the baby at six weeks and two days, which I think it's a really good idea to to see your obstetrician, you know, pretty early on in the piece to make sure that the pregnancy is located in the uterus mm. and also to make sure there's no ectopic pregnancy but also to confirm the dates. Yeah. If the woman tells me, look, I'm dead set certain, I've got a 28-day cycle, I know exactly when I ovulated, then if I'm seeing the baby within a seven-day period, so let's say she should be six weeks and two days and I'm seeing the baby at seven weeks, I'll actually still go with your original date, so okay. six weeks and two days. Yeah. If the baby well and true, like we're talking like seven weeks and four days, then I'll rejig the, re-jig the dates to the new described date according to the pregnancy. Yeah. And that's partly because the reason why we're pretty confident in terms of uh, dates on ultrasound scan is because most babies irrespective of whether they're going to become giants or they're going to become a, a rover on, on a football team, yeah. will all be the same size from around about six weeks to at least 11 or 12 weeks. Okay, that's interesting. And, and then from 12, week on, 12 weeks onwards, they start developing into the characteristics that will make them either a bigger bubba or a little bubba. Okay. But, but your Freddie was a big bubba. He was a big bubba. He was always a big bubba, actually. <laughs> So did you find out? So did you do your? Did you do your screening for um, uh, like all chromosomal abnormalities at ten weeks, or did you? What did you decide? Yeah, so we did all three actually. We we're going to do the um, the bigger screening for the Down syndrome, which is a ninety nine percent. I can't remember what that one's called, and yeah. the 
one that looks at my genes as well. I can't remember what that one is. Um, yeah, so it's often recommended now, particularly even before you become pregnant. So I, I sort of am, am encouraging women to actually, if they're going to go private, go and see your obstetrician beforehand or go and make an appointment to see an obstetrician that you think you want to go and see beforehand because it gets you an opportunity to be able to establish a rapport and just make sure that that person's the right person for you because, you know, there's, I always use the adage that there's not a suitable, there's not necessarily the best doctor but there's the best doctor for you. Yeah, definitely. Obviously yours, yours came at a recommendation so that's even better. Yeah. But one of the it can do before you become pregnant is this genetic testing that you talked about before, which looks at um, the genetically inherited conditions. So what you and potentially Daniel would yeah. pass on to your children in terms of genes. And one of the major ones in our community is cystic fibrosis. And cystic mm. fibrosis, around 1 million Australians, so 1 in 25 Australians will have the cystic fibrosis gene. And of those, um, of those people, uh, if you meet someone who has that cystic fibrosis gene, then there's a one in four chance potentially of passing that gene on to your, your child. Mm -hmm. So, um, so at the end of the day, you, there's about, if you meet someone, so there's a one in 25 chance of meeting someone with CF and mm -hmm. a one in four chance of having, passing on the gene, that, that ultimately results in around about a one in 2,500 chance of having a, uh, a baby with cystic fibrosis. So what we often do is ask, if you want to, to do mm -hmm. genetic carrier screening uh, in order to determine whether there's any risk of you carrying on that gene to a bubba. So that's that genetic screen that you were talking about. Before. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I didn't even really think about it, honestly, before I got pregnant, but a lot of um, women that I talk to and friends, they've said they've had it done before they were you know, thinking about getting pregnant. I was like, oh, I didn't even, I didn't even think about, I knew there was the um, Down syndrome testing and all of that, but I didn't think about for me and what, you know, I just assumed, you know, my sister's had great kids and everyone's, you know, fine. And I didn't think that I would look at myself and then, you know, if I had it or then to look at Dan, but we, you know, luckily we were, we were all clear. We did all three in the end. So, um, the one that looks yeah. at your placenta, um, which is a lower reading of the Down syndrome, and then we did the one that looks at the Down syndrome testing, which was higher and what sex it is. Although we didn't find out what sex Freddie was, and then yeah, the so you did, did you do both tests? You did the which which test did you do? Just tell me. Um, I did I did all all of them. So we just the the third this. The one that looks at your placenta and it was like an 80% chance of picking up Down syndrome. It was like oh, a, so a cheaper yeah, well. one. Yeah, because she, uh, the lady at the, uh, um, the ultrasound place said that because yeah. well, I was like, well, what's the point in doing that one if I'm going to do the higher um, percentage yeah. of the other one? Um, and she was like, oh, it was $100 more. And it looks at your placenta and the, if your placenta is growing okay. She said, you know, you are seeing a private obstetrician, so you might not want to do it. And uh, Daniel and I were just like, look, it's $100 more, just do it all. Uh, you know, that's fine. So I, might, I might explain that to people. So yeah. there's what's termed combined first trimester screening for Downs, which looks at your age and combines that with two other hormones, one the pregnancy hormone HCG, but the other one looking at a hormone called the PAPA hormone. What's actually, and so those, when they, they use an algorithm, they get your age, they get the hormone levels and they combine that together and it spits out a relative risk of having a pregnancy affected by Down syndrome. So it talks about, you know, if your background chance, if you're a 30 year old woman of being mm -hmm. one in a thousand, if you get up, you know, really good levels on the hormones and obviously you're young, then the level will indicate that or the combined uh, hormone screening plus your age will give give you a rate that is very low, let's say 1 in 2,000 or 3,000. Yeah. And they combine that also with the thickness of the baby's neck done at a sort of 12 weeks gestation. Yeah. Now, in addition to that, it's PAP-A test, so that the one, the, the one of the hormones that it picks up it does look at placental function. But what it does is it indicates that if it's particularly very low, it indicates that there's a risk that the baby might have 
um, a little bit of placental insufficiency, which basically means the baby might be smaller towards the latter part of pregnancy. And so what it does is it says to the obstetrician or your caregiver midwife that, you know, we probably should be on the lookout towards the latter part of pregnancy about this baby potentially being small. Invariably, this test has now been superseded by the one that you talked about latter, which is the non-invasive perinatal screening test, which which is actually looking at chromosomes of the baby um, and determines whether there's a risk of Down syndrome. And one of the reasons is because even if the PAPA is low and indicating that the risk of pregnancy is, uh, you know, the baby becoming smaller to the latter part of pregnancy, you're exactly right. If you've got a private obstetrician who's going to be monitoring you in terms of the baby's growth, and most of us as private obstetricians do ultrasound scans to make sure that the bubba's growing well, mm. and then having that result handy for us doesn't change our management. And I remember when I was a medical registrar working at the hospital at the Alfred, I would say to the medical students that the most expensive thing in a hospital is an intern's pen, so a junior doctor's <laughs> pen, because they write any test they want and spend as much money they want. But ultimately, you've got to test if you think it's going to change the outcome. So that's why we've now moved more to the non-invasive perinatal screening test which looks specifically at the chromosomes of the baby to make sure that the chromosomes are two. There's two of everything, two of chromosome one, two of chromosome two, all the way through until you hit 22. Yep. And assuming that they're all fine, then we say the bubba's great. Yeah. So you didn't find out the though, this time around? No, no, we didn't find out the sex. We wanted it to so be you wanted a surprise. To have, you wanted a surprise. Well, that's, that's good. I reckon how many of your friends have found out the sex beforehand? There's four of us. One's pregnant at the yeah. moment, so two of us, uh, two of them, had found out, and um, only myself and um, one of my other friends have not found out. But the other two girls are very, you know, need to be organised. I want to have this ready to go, which everyone thought I would be like that, being a teacher. But um, as much as it was tempting every time, I just thought you can't get that moment of you've got a little, you know girl or boy being presented to so I really just that was holding me back from finding out and I don't that was the best one of the best moments that Dan and I you know we shared together of finding out it just was magical so I'm so glad I didn't but yeah it's pretty rare now every if you know even all the midwives in hospital when they asked me are you going to find out and I'd say no they were all like oh I'm so glad you're not that's so rare most people find out these days so yeah what do you think? What do you think you're going to do next time? No, I don't think I'd find out. I wouldn't find out again. It was too good. No. I think it's just it's too too good of a moment to find out about. I don't. Yeah. No. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Um. Alrighty. So the first bit of the pregnancy, a little bit scared because you were worried that there was some. You know, you'd had gastro, but could the bubba be okay? And obviously. Everything, thank God, was absolutely fine. Yeah. Um, how long did the gastro last for? Oh, it was luckily only, it was about three days. And I, my sister actually said to me at six weeks she got um, morning sickness and I was six weeks. So I was like, oh, my gosh, this is horrible if this is morning sickness. Um, but, yeah, luckily it only lasted three days and it was just gastro. So, yeah. Oh, that's good. And how did you feel for the first part of the pregnancy then? Um, the first part, I was just starving, so hungry all the time and extremely tired. I was so exhausted. And, um, you know, being at school with the kids and my the girl who I worked with, she was pretty much on to me. I think she nearly asked me five times before I told them at 14 weeks um, if I was pregnant because I was just, she's like, you know, you're usually all over everything, you're up and about all the time. I was so exhausted and um, hungry. So everyone was on to me because I was snacking a lot more than you. I normally eat a lot anyway, um, but I was snacking way more than usual and I was really tired. So um, most people knew they told me before I even said anything. And other there, was than no way you could, there was no way you could hide your snacking. You could no. just go, you know, <laughs> around the back of the quickly eat something I thought I was doing a good job but obviously I'm pretty transparent um you know in meetings having snacks in front of me uh didn't really 
do much myself much justice and they just they just laughed at me they were like you were eating so much and we just knew like I eat a lot already what do you mean <laughs> but yeah they were all they were all on to me I see there's only one good thing about COVID and was that all the women who were newly pregnant during the whole isolation period could hide their pregnancies pretty easily yes definitely <laughs> it's probably one good no thing need- <laughs> no need to uh, pretend I'm not drinking because I've got a cold. Well, that's another thing. <laughs> oh, I'm going to drive or I'm not feeling very well. They're like, you always have that's a right. wine. Why won't you have a wine now? <laughs> Getting me on everything. So the pregnancy went pretty well then. So the first scan, was there anything that sort of popped up on that first scan that was anything that you were worried about or was just, a, just an awesome experience being there and seeing Bubba live on the TV screen? It was amazing. Actually, the only thing we got, we were like, oh, my gosh, was um, the uh, the sack. I always I always forget the name of this. Yeah, um, was bigger than normal. And my obstetrician, Carl, thought we had twins in there. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I don't know if I can do twins. And he's yeah. no, he said, no, there's only one heartbeat. Your sac's just um, larger than normal, which is fine. And, yeah, the first scan was just amazing to see, Bubs. It was very surreal. I still feel it's surreal. You know, Freddie's here and I'm like, well, you know, he's mine. Um, but, yeah, the whole thing is pretty surreal. The only thing that happened in that first part at 16 weeks was I got really um, bad back pain one night which um I nearly fainted and vomited and got the sweats and things like that and ended up going into hospital um where they thought I passed a kidney stone because mm. in all the tests nothing came up um I ended up having to go get another ultrasound to have a look at my kidneys and my bladder and my cervix to make sure everything was fine because it was just very random and very sudden um and really intense pain, like super, super, super intense, woke me up during the night and I was really um, freaked out about that. So that first trimester, other than that, that's kind of what happened, yeah. It's not, it's not unreasonable. It's, a lot of women do have – the things that we get worried about early on in pregnancy is women getting urinary tract infections, and that's why we always ask women to do a urinary tract um, – oh, sorry, a, a midstream urine so that we can pick up any urinary tract infection. Yeah. Because women are a lot more susceptible, particularly early on in pregnancy, to the infections of the bladder, which then can also become infections of the kidney. And we're worried about that in the context of if, if you do get an overwhelming infection, that that can lead to miscarriage. So that's why we're very vigilant about sort of looking at the urine and making sure the urine's clear. Mm-hmm. And if it's not, then treating the urine. The other thing that does happen in freak, and not in not that infrequently, sorry, is uh, the is kidney stones. I've had a few patients actually recently have had either kidney stones mm-hmm. or the other thing that happens is the uterus sometimes compress on the um, the pipe that drains urine from the kidney down to the bladder. So you yeah. get a backlog of it's a bit like kinking off a hose. Yeah. You get a backlog of pressure above the kink, uh, which causes a bit of kidney pain. Yeah. I think it's really important if you're getting any pain. Normally kidney stone pain presents with what we call a loin to groin pain. So you've got sort of this lower back pain where your kidneys are and it sort of radiates all the way down round round the sort of side of your of your tummy all the way down to your groin. So it's a very typical sensation of this loin to groin pain yep. that women have. And you, your doctor did the right thing, obviously, kidney scan, look, looking for any stones, and they're checking, of course, that the baby's okay and, of course, that the cervix is long, which would be indicative of, your, you know, basically yeah. being in good health. Well, that's good. I'm glad that. But so certainly, just a bit of it lasted for a day, and then and then it went, or it did last a little bit longer. Than um, no, it was just that um, kind of attack, and then I had another little attack while out shopping one day, um, and I ended up then got the car, and I was laying in the back of the car, and we were around the corner from the hospital, but it eventually passed. That was good, um, but I actually had exactly what you described. Then um, at 35 weeks, ended up in hospital for five days with. Um, the blocking of the pipe, and it was just the most right. intense. But yeah, so that was um, that was a bit of fun. First week of maternity yeah. leave, <laughs> ended up in hospital. It was just shocking pain. They thought I had a kidney stone again, but 
Um, we couldn't find anything and because my uterus was just so big because bubs were so big, it was just pushing on that tube and, you know, had to, ended up having an MRI, which was quite stressful for me and, you know, concerned about bubs and if bubs would be okay. But, um, you know, what were you, tr- what were you, wor- what were you worried about in particular? Um, I just didn't know if MRIs were, and look, I just went with Carl and anything that he said, I was, you know, very, um, I, I really trusted him. So if he said it was fine, then I'd go with that. Um, but yeah, I was just worried that something would happen to bubs. I don't know. I know, I knew it wasn't like an x-ray. You can't have x-rays while pregnant, but I wasn't sure about MRI. I haven't really heard about anyone having an MRI while pregnant. Um, so that's kind of really threw me and I was really worried, really worried about that. Um, and obviously while I was in the MRI machine, I'm having pains and, you know, got to try and sit still. And I just remember laying there crying, going, oh, I just want this all to be over. Like it was just all a bit too much. But um, because I thought it might have been my appendix as well. But in the MRI, I couldn't even find out my appendix and the um, tube, my uterus was blocking the tube. So it was putting that pressure back into my kidney Um and luckily it was draining a little bit because um, you know, Carl was worried that if it was fully blocked, then, you know, we'd have to talk about what to do next because it was causing so much pain that it actually was bringing on contractions. So we were trying to pain manage the contractions. That's what, so, and luckily we did. Um, but yeah, that's why I ended up being in hospital for a bit longer than what, and you know, what what I wanted to be just because they were, making sure that I was stable enough and under um, control with pain just so we could get a few more weeks without, you know, um, having... Oh, yeah, I know. Can you hear it? Yeah, I know. I can hear you crying. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Hey, guys. Mickey here, co-founder at Tiny Hearts Education. At Tiny Hearts, our mission is to bring education to all Australian parents through first aid and birthing courses so you can move through pregnancy, childbirth and parenthood with confidence. To come along to one of our courses, head to tinyheartseducation.com and use the code PODCAST10 to get $10 off any course booking. That's all from me. Let's get back to Joe and today's story. I think just to reassure you and, of course, our listeners out there that MRIs are really safe in pregnancy. They aren't x-rays. So what we're worried about with x-rays is the potential exposure the x-ray has on the baby and then the teratinogenicity or the changes that can happen to Bubba that are causes cause abnormalities. Yeah. Um, now, they're going to be, you know, with x-rays definitely, and we try to avoid x-rays as best as we possibly can. There are some circumstances where we might indicate a CT scan or alternatively a chest x-ray for um, looking for clots in the lungs, let's say. But when yeah. we're doing an MRI, this is, uses actually magnets. Um, and rather than using X-ray, it's called magnet, um, magnetic resonance imaging. So it's actually very safe. And, and often we use MRI in pregnancy to look at baby. So if we're worried about a particular lesion in baby and we're, we need to get some more definition, now ultrasound is really good. Yeah. But if we do MRIs on Bubba, we can get a really nice picture of baby. So we know that MRIs are very, very safe. Obviously, we don't need to do them because, you know, ultrasound machines are generally quite good at looking at Bubba. Yeah. But in that setting where, you know, Carl was obviously worried about your kidneys, it's, it makes sense. And, you know, in some cases, certainly early on in pregnancy, if it occurs where you can block, where you block the the pipe draining the, the, the fluid from the kidney to the bladder. Mm. You know, there have been cases where we involve the uh, kidney doctors or the urologists to actually put a little, sometimes a little stent or sometimes mm. even drain fluid directly from the kidney out so it relieves that pressure. Yeah. But at 35 weeks, I suppose the decision would have been, which would have been a hard decision, the decision would have been whether we, you know, if this is ongoing, do we just have Bubba? Yeah, well, that's what the chat was. If it was... Still, because um, he said, if we do do that, like what you just said, then put a stint in or drain it, the chances of infection then, you know, outweigh, you, you may as well have bubs and be safe than, you know, go through that. Now the dogs are so much is going on in the background. Ah, but so, yeah, so we spoke about, um, <laughs> sorry about that. It's just the dogs. That's right. 
that's partly one of the reasons why we do it. Actually, we should tell everybody that you know, the, the other podcasts I've been doing, of course, have been in my rooms where we've got a sort of somewhat soundproof. But at the moment, uh, because of COVID, we're doing it all sort of somewhat remotely. So Tara yeah. and I actually had a good go at it the first time round back on the 30th of April, mm. so one month, just over a month ago. And unfortunately, with the powers of the mm. internet that weren't working that well, uh, we had to call it off. But today we've got babies in the background and dogs barking. <laughs> We've got good internet. We've just got extra, yeah, few extra people joining us today. Extra, extra sound in the background. Yeah. Um, so that pain all sort of go, it sort of come back down then. Yeah. So um, luckily, well, actually, it was just around when COVID hit, and um, my obstetrician was going away for a week. So that would have been weekly checkups. Like I was in hospital anyway. So I think I saw Carl a week and a half after I left hospital just to check on pain. Um, and yeah, luckily I was able to manage it. And I was thankful that Bubs was okay. Freddie was fine through all of this. It was more me. Um, and it eased because COVID hit. And I couldn't really go anywhere. So I was at home resting, um, you know, forcefully, which was a blessing in disguise for me because because I rested so much, the pain eased. I think I just overdid it and flared up the the whole thing. Um, so I, that was a little bit of a blessing at the time when, uh, you know, no one was really sure what was going on with the virus. So I didn't really leave the house because I was like, oh, I'm, you know, so far along. If I got sick now, you know, that would just be detrimental and I just want to make sure I can extend this pregnancy as long as I can and keep Freddie in there for as long as I can. So, yeah. So how, how long did you, how long did, uh, well, did Freddie decide his entrance or did Carl decide that uh, there was time for Freddie to come out? Uh, we went in at, so I had my 39 week scan and, um, or what to see Carl and, you know, did the ultrasound. Freddie hadn't engaged though at all. He was down, but he hadn't engaged and he was sitting posterior. Um, and that was on a Monday and he said, let's, bring you into hospital on Thursday and I want to have a look. We'll do an internal and see how high he is and then we'll make some decisions whether we um, induce you or we do a cesarean depending on what that looks like when we have a look. So um, when we went in on Thursday, so I was 40 weeks on the Saturday, so we went in on Thursday, had a look. Um, Freddie was still quite high. He did give us the option of both. Um, either way, it was, we were going to have him on the Friday. Um, but the risks of inducing him and coming down that far, as well as being posterior, as well as being a big baby, um, all of these things kind of aligned. And, you know, Carl just suggested that the likelihood of you needing to have an emergency cesarean is probably very high at this stage anyway. Um, but if you want to go through that process, like we'll do it. Uh, he just highly recommended doing a cesarean for me at that stage. And I remember Carl walked out of the midwife was there and I said to her, you know, engaging and things like that. What's it, you know, what do you, what do you think? I don't really know. This is my first child. So I don't really know it what could happen. Um, that stage, that was when everyone was, was in lockdown. And I remember calling the hospital every day, trying to find out, will Daniel be allowed to be in the rooms with me? Can he stay overnight? So that was pretty stressful anyway. Um, and I didn't want to make the decision because of, you know, he might not be able to be there with me. And uh, the midwife said to me, you know, normally with your first child, your baby will engage around 37, 38 weeks. Um, and I was like, well, I'm pretty much 40 weeks is another few days going to get him to engage? I don't think he will, because um, at home I'd been I'd been on the ball, I'd been bouncing, I'd been walking, I'd been trying to get him down as much as I could, um, and he wasn't. So all of those factors, and I was quite anxious about if I went another week, what would the hospital look like in COVID, and what would this be for me and Daniel and the baby? And I just you know, with everything, it was like, well, I just don't think I'm meant to give birth to Freddie naturally, just not meant to happen. And and look, I, I didn't have a birth plan. 
I just said, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And I think for Freddie, that was his, his uh, way of saying, you know, this is how I'm going to come into the world. So we did a plan cesarean Friday morning and yeah. Beautiful. That was it. So I might just run through for, for people. I mean, one of the things is uh, we talk about engagement of the head and how how much of the baby's head is sitting within the pelvis. Think about the pelvis as a little bit like a basketball hoop. Um, so everything below the basketball hoop, so if you imagine basketball hoop sitting on a basketball, everything below the basketball hoop is in the pelvis. Everything above the basketball hoop is in, in the belly. Mm-hmm. So the baby's head, obviously, during most of the pregnancy, is nowhere near inside the basketball hoop. But as the baby's head starts to engage, then part of that head is coming through the basketball hoop. And we talk about it when, we, when we're feeling above the belly, how many fifths of the baby's head we can feel within the tummy, which then gives us an indication of how many fifths are within the baby. So if you divided a basketball up into fifths, mm-hmm. so, you know, you can just slice the basketball like you would an orange in, in fifths, and then you imagine that head slowly descending through the basketball. Once the baby's head is in the, through the hoop, through the pelvis that you can't actually move the head anymore because it's sort of wedged mm-hmm. down within uh, more than half of it's within the in the pelvis and less of it's above, then the baby's what we term really well engaged. Okay. And that point in time, it's quite favourable then for a vaginal birth because it means that the baby's head is well down within the pelvis. However, babies will engage within the pelvis at different times. So, I mean, I tend to probably not agree totally with what the midwife said because in part sometimes babies won't engage until 40 weeks and four days. Yeah. But I suspect how big was Freddie when he was born? Uh, 8.3 pounds. Yeah, tell me what that is in kilos. Oh, <laughs> hold on. I'll do a quick conversion. Uh, uh, people often ask me, how much is uh, that in, uh, you know, three, well, I often use It's about 3.7, 3.76. So he's a nice. Nice size for you. Yeah. Um, so, so often, um, often, uh, you know, babies in the first time round may not engage until, sometimes they don't engage until you're in labour. Like your waters might break and the baby's head might engage at that point. Mm. A lot of people ask me, you know, I, I tend to, you know, I agree with a woman's right to choose whether she wants to have a vaginal birth or a Caesar. And, but, you know, from my perspective, uh, I sort of, I sort of say that, that the, you know, you can't really make a determination about whether a baby's going to come out vaginally or not until you've actually gone through labour. Because mm. one of the other analogies that I've got in terms of the, the basketball, going through the basketball hoop, is just like a basketball, you know a basketball's got like these little leaves on it which are held together by the black rubbery bits, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, you've got a bas- so if you imagine you've got a basketball and you're trying to fit it through the hoop, but it's just too big for the hoop. Mm. It doesn't want to fit there, right? So let's say, for example, now what you do is you get those basketball leaves, you get rid of the black, that little black um, you know, rubber that holds the two leaves of the basketball together or the leaves of the basketball together, and you allow the leaves to fold over one another. Mm-hmm. Right? So now what you're doing as a result of that is you're allowing the basketball to shrink in its diameter just a little bit. And then that allows the basketball to fit through the basketball hoop. Yeah. So that process occurs during labour to the baby's head. So the baby, you know, we always, whenever we feel baby's heads, you probably felt Freddie's head when he first came out, you can feel all these little jagged bits where there's um, there's the bones that haven't fused together yet. And then yeah. there's also those soft patches that you can feel at the front of his head and also the, it's a bit weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's horrible. I'm like, oh, I'm getting freaked out when I touch it. It is a little bit, but but that those bones, the baby's bones are really they can mould over one another, just like those leaves on the basketball folding over one another. Yeah. The same thing happens with the um, with the baby's skull bones; they fold over one another when you're in labour, and that allows the baby's head to fit through the birth canal. Yeah. So often, the determination of whether necessarily you're going to have a vaginal birth or not. Is uh, is basic based around what happens or the mechanisms of what happens during labour itself, and babies mm. will be posterior, you know, during during your pregnancy. We tend to get worried about the position of baby more so when you're actually in labour because yeah. one of the great 
it's about the woman's body, is the pelvis acts a little bit like a gutter or it sort of sort of it tries to to try to what it does is it tries to turn baby's head so that the the back of baby's head is at the front mm-hmm. uh, which we talk about occipital anterior so it sort of helps rotate the baby's head during the process of, of labor and so even though yes some babies will be posterior early on in the start of labor the vast majority towards the end of labour have then subsequently their heads have rotated so that they're looking down towards mum's bottom as opposed yeah. to looking up. Yeah. So that mechanism happens during labour. One of the things I agree with Carl in so much is, is, you know, if the baby's head's not well down deep in the pelvis mm. at a time you think you want to have the baby and, and obviously there was a decision to have the baby sort of around the 40-week mark, yeah. then chance that the, the, the baby, that you, your induction of labour will be successful will be lower. There's no yeah. doubt about that. And yeah. so often some, some of us will wait that additional, you know, it might be three, four, four days, it might be even a week, and, and we can go up. If everything's going well with the pregnancy and there's no issues in terms of, in your case, you had an issue in terms of pain and potentially the risk to the kidneys, but, yeah. you know, there's no issue with Baba and there's no issue with Mama then at the end of the day, we can wait up until at least 41 weeks and, and in some cases 41 weeks and three days just to make sure that we're given an opportunity for that baby's head to descend and engage. But I yeah. think you made the right decision. It was a difficult time, certainly with COVID, mm. uh, and, you know, and and there was that element of uncertainty. I know that you know I did a, f- a fair few podcasts, even with Tiny Heart, talking about you know our partners allowed in, you know, mm. And there was this confusion about whether that was still possible. And so a lot of the hospitals haven't communicated that appropriately. So I think, you know, obviously that level of anxiety didn't need to be there. And I think, you know, obviously Freddie came out perfectly, which is the most important thing. Yeah, which will, you know, um, yeah, given the option to wait. And I was like, uh, do I really want to, I don't know. I just, for me, for I don't know, I felt like if I waited three more days, like, you know, he was big and I just thought I don't know what the chances are of him actually engaging but when Carl did obviously operate and cut me open he said really lucky let's talk about about he made a nice beautiful incision yeah you shouldn't say that that should I (laughs) when he so delicately opened my belly up um, (laughs) um, he, he did say that he was really hot like he was said yeah. lucky we did this because he was actually much higher than what he thought yeah. when he did the internal he was still bouncing he could feel his head bouncing um yeah. so he was like I'm actually really glad we made this decision because he was higher again than what I suspected than before so and look at going into that process for me mentally as well I was calm I accepted it that's just what's going to happen um, and we we're doing it. So for me, going into having Freddie as well, I was the only thing I was worried about was the spinal block. That's but in the end, that was actually much better than what I thought it was going to be. So everything. Uh, I think I've, I've said this before. I think Caesars get a very bad rap, and I think part of the reason why they do is you know the vast majority of people in Australia probably still have their babies within the public sector. Those doctors that are doing either either the surgery or the, 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 the Caesar or even the people that are doing the epidurals are trainee doctors. It's not to say yeah. they're less skilled than someone, but no, they've not done as much as, say, for example, the anaesthetist who did the spinal block on you. He or she will have done you know, thousands upon thousands mm. of spinal blocks. And so you're getting highly skilled professionals who've done a lot of the, uh, you know, done all their training and then subsequently been in private practice for a long time working on you and making sure and I often liken it to you know an AFL footballer who's uh, or an NRL footballer because there's people in <laughs> New South Wales and Queensland listen to this podcast yeah. uh, who you know it's done a knee and you know they're going to mm. want to have the best surgeon look after them in terms of their knee to make sure that they get back on the field and playing rugby or footy again so yeah so definitely. you know that's a you, you had a, you had a wonderful time and the other thing of course is you know Often, often an emergency Caesar is, you know, when you've gone through labour for such a long period of time is also, you know, it, it makes it a lot harder to recover. And, yeah. you know, an elective Caesar done early in the morning, 
when you've yeah. got good pain relief for the course of the day, it means the next day you're feeling pretty good. Yeah, so, yeah, that was the thing, you know, recovery-wise. He said if we do end up going into an emergency cesarean, you're going to have a longer recovery than if we um, choose to do an elective. So, yeah. Yeah. So and look, the first, how were the first few days uh, then post the cesarean section? Uh, it was interesting, you know, bed bedridden and uh, quite sore. I just remember because um, obviously Dan got to stay with me. So we were, we were in there for five days, six including the day before when we went to, you know, do the internal and all that kind of thing. Um, it was, yeah, I found it, oh, I, it wasn't too bad pain-wise. It was okay. It was just more getting up and down and grabbing Freddie out of the, you know, the bassinet or, you know, um, breastfeeding was fine and I was just in the bed but you know it was a lot of Dan can you grab Freddie or Dan can you put him down um and that kind of thing but that first shower was (laughs) so lovely (laughs) you know getting out of bed and actually or you know just sitting there um was really nice but yes to be honest with you it's all a bit of a blur (laughs) cool well you know that's why you go back for the second yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, not not too soon. <laughs> if you were to remember everything, you wouldn't go back. Tell me if you had, you know, you're going to have another baby, hopefully. And and if you do, do you think that you would want to have a vaginal birth after a Caesar, or or would you prefer to, you know, say, okay, well, you know what, I've had an elective season. It wasn't. It was not what I thought it was going to be. It was actually okay, and I'd probably have an elective season next time. Any thoughts about that? Had you spoken to Carl about that? Yeah, we did. I said to him, you know, can I have it naturally? I think there's, you know, a time frame which um, given, you know, Dan and I decided to have a baby now so that I wanted a three-year gap at least between babes. Um, so I think, yeah, I would see what happens. If, if it was to come naturally, then I would go with it. I don't think I would have a problem with that. Um but I don't know if my what my chances would be of that happening again, uh, or if it was a cesarean, it would just be a, you know would have to see what Bubs is doing. I'm pretty easy like that. I don't really. I know some women are very um, caught up on going through that that process. And yeah, for me, I, I thought about it, and you know, weird thinking. I've never haven't experienced labour, but at the same time, my thinking is well, that's the way my body's going and that's what is meant to happen and whatever's going to be safest for Bubs and me. So um, if that's what it is, that's what it is. If I did go naturally, then great. And if I didn't, then that's it. Yeah. Um, I think in actual fact you did raise something about the time interval and I think it's important to know that if you are considering a vaginal birth after a cesarean section, particularly when you've had a Caesar. Not when you've been in labour. I've actually done a few talks recently um, where I've talked about vaginal birth after a cesarean section. And, and if, if you've had a Caesar for whether it be like a breech presentation where the baby's bottom's down rather than the head or alternatively like in your case where the baby was high, um, you know, the decision then to have a vaginal birth is really going to be yours ultimately. Mm. Uh, but, you know, in terms of time interval between pregnancy to or birth to birth we want at least 18 months and at least 20 ideally 24 months before you know that scar where the uterus has been opened up or nicely the incision <laughs> has been made, um, uh, where the uterus has been uh, opened for the cesarean section to heal nicely and yeah. so that means technically speaking you could be pregnant in nine to 12 months because then obviously add another nine months to that and you'll be over 18 months. So, um, yeah. so yeah, so we, we often want that scar, the integrity of the start scar to be quite strong uh, to allow women uh, to labour naturally and also therefore to have a vaginal birth. But, I mean, these are all decisions, of course, you'll make with Carl in this, any subsequent pregnancy. Yeah, yeah, just see what happens. <laughs> see when we get pregnant next. Any woman out there who's, you know, going to be in a similar position with you, I mean, you had a, I suppose, I, I liked your adage, which is, you know, I didn't really have a birth plan and I trusted Carl in terms of in terms of whatever he said. I, I, I sort of, you know, I, I reckon in actual fact, often having a, a birth plan and having very constrained and tight 
um, you know, a set of tight circumstances or tight criteria that you want to have for a pregnancy. Oh, sorry, a labor. Often, mm-hmm. if you don't meet those tight deadlines, like I want this and I want that and I want that, if you don't meet them, you can often feel like you've had a sense of failure if you've not yeah. achieved those. And I, one of the things that I think, and, and Tiny Hearts does this beautifully, is that they have a birthing class, you know, online and in the future, hopefully, we're going to be face-to-face, yeah. uh, whereby you're just given the information that you required to understand the birthing process and that information then gives you knowledge that you can use when, when you're in labour yeah. and or when making a decision like yourself in terms of the cesarean section. And that, that's what probably is what a birth, you know, understanding birthing classes and understanding birth and then really trusting in your caregivers because I think, you know, developing a set, really strict set of criteria, unfortunately, I've seen a lot of women where they've not met those expectations and then, you know, really do feel like they've failed. Yeah, definitely. I uh, One of my girlfriends, um, she got to seven centimetres dilated and it was all good, but her epidural fell out um, and ended up being an emergency cesarean and she went into full shock because she was just set that she was having a natural labour and I was like, yeah, I don't want to have that preconceived idea, you, you know, that I, because the thought of letting yourself down or not being able to do it is um, would be horrible to think about all the time. So, yeah. yeah, and I think we saying that, and there will be women who have listened to this podcast and probably podcasts before, and have gone through a process of labour where they do feel as though they've not achieved what they thought or set their mind to. Mm. I think it's really important that that you go and speak to whether it be the midwife or or the doctor at the hospital that you delivered at, or if you've got a private obstetrician, the private obstetrician, just to gain an understanding of the mechanisms of why certain decisions were made because there's nothing worse than being home thinking that you failed when it's not actually a, a, a failure at all. The biggest you know, reward or I suppose yeah. the biggest piece of success about all of this is the baby that's in your arms. Yeah, definitely. That safe arrival. Correct, and no one gets a gold medal for walking out of a birthing suite, you know, or, you know, even having a, a baby at home, you know, for doing it without drugs, you know, in the water, uh, yeah. on all fours. No one, no one gets a stamp. You know, at the end of the day, every woman's birthing experience is unique to yours, as yours was unique to you, mm-hmm. and, you know, no woman should be judged for that birthing experience that they had. So, you know, I think... I think we'll end on that note. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> it's nice to have you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and I think you know, look, we've talked a bit today. We've talked a little bit about Down syndrome screening, the two different types of tests. We talked about the first combined tri- trimester screening for Downs, the non-invasive perinatal screening test. Yeah. We talked, you know, about keeping it a surprise. Yeah. So you know when the baby <laughs> comes out, you tell everybody mm-hmm. you know. Uh, we talked about how, how your kidney function can sometimes be impaired during during pregnancy, and of course, you know, making a decision which is a combined and an informed decision about the best mode of birth for your bubba, and then you know, realizing that you know, at the end of the day, uh, the reward is the baby in front of you, or know, baby crying in the background. That's yeah, just all there for us. Oh, you enjoy him, and uh, and I'm I'm very happy. And so, thank you so much for sharing uh, your story with us. And of course, you can listen to future episodes of Birth, uh, sorry, Bump, Birth, and Beyond uh, via the podcast series on a Thursday every fortnight. Um, I'd like to thank you, Tara, again for coming uh, and uh, speaking to us today. Thank you. Uh, make sure you keep up to date with all things related to pregnancy, fertility, gynaecology uh, on my Instagram page at Dr. Joseph Scroy. And you can also follow Tiny Hearts Education by their Instagram handle and also Facebook. Thanks once again, Tara. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thanks, you too. See you later. Bye for now. Bye.